Thank you. Thanks, Ray Choir. Well, before we go to a time of prayer as a church family, I want to take just a moment to recognize and celebrate uh, Pastor Kenton Cober. He doesn't like this kind of thing, but I think it's important for us to do. Uh, after 31 years of, uh, as a pastor of worship ministries in four different churches, including eight years here at Chapel Street, after planning several thousand worship services, we couldn't figure out just how many, uh, and at least 50 major musical productions, Kenton has been asked to step out of worship ministries and into uh, the leadership of our communications ministries uh, here at Chapel Street, where we have significant needs and he has remarkable gifts. So he has handed off leadership of our choir and planning our worship to Carly Alcorn. So we are in good hands there. Uh, but I would like us to recognize today and thank Pastor Kenton for 31 years of worship leadership in the Church of the Lord Jesus. So will you please join me in thanking him? So thank you, Kenton. We recognize um, that's a lot of worship services to plan, and uh, we know you'll do well in your next uh, area of ministry because our communication needs, our video needs, website, all that t takes a lot of attention, and Kenton is great at that, that kind of thing. So let me um, mention to you a couple things you can be in prayer for. You may have seen the news uh, circulating that uh, we lost a church member this past week, Carl Johansson, passed away on Thursday. I ask you to keep his wife, Patty, and their whole extended family in your prayers. Carl served in our Royal Family Kids Camp most recently as woodworker and grandpa. His service is going to be Saturday, this coming Saturday morning, at Malone Funeral Home in Geneva. Visitation at 9 a.m. with the service at 11 a.m. there at Malone in Geneva. And please remember as well Art Gustafson, who continues to be under hospice care at Michelson Center uh, at the Homestead. So let's, let's bow in prayer. Lord God, we give you our worship today. And as we think toward Thanksgiving, the cultural holiday of Thanksgiving, and we ask you, your spirit to move within us that it would be also a deeply meaningful spiritual Thanksgiving as well. So we thank you today for the great blessing of being part of your great family, and not just here at Chapel Street in this local place, but your family all over the world. We thank you for Pastor Kenton and his service for many years in several different church families, uh, and we uh, ask you to bless him uh, with your pleasure today. Lord, we pray for uh, Carl Johansson's family uh, with his wife Patty and their entire extended family. Uh, we thank you for his life and his, and his faithfulness, and we ask that you would provide comfort and peace there. We also pray for Art uh, and Karen as Art continues to be under hospice care. Again, we ask you to bless him with your presence, your comfort, and Karen with your peace as they face these days. Lord, again, as we head toward Thanksgiving, we know that uh, all over our culture, uh, people will gather. Some will be deeply thankful, uh, and, and some will uh, experience trouble or loss. And so we ask you to bless each one of us, whether we gather with families or friends. We ask you to help us to remember uh, your blessings in our lives and to be thankful. And we pray that those families who are celebrating together would uh, rejoice and have a great time of fun and fellowship. And for families who are either struggling with conflict or maybe with loss of a loved one, again, we ask that you would bring uh, comfort and peace uh, to each of those situations as people gather together. Lord, bring us here again uh, next week full, uh, hearts full of gratitude for all you have done and continue to do in our lives and our families and in this, your church. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I did not plan on being married right now. <laughs>
<laughs> before I met him. <laughs> I'm young, I'm 25, you know, my generation, we don't get married this young. So we met actually at a bar. <laughs> so not the most conservative <laughs> Christian meeting there is out yeah. there. The way we look at how we met is that we both were not necessarily on in the right headspace, on the right path, and God put us in each other's lives. When I first met Anthony, I, uh, then I did give him my number, but then I kind of ghosted him for three months because I met him at a bar. I wasn't going to talk to this guy. Can't trust him. Um, Next time I met up with Anthony, like three months later, I told him, I said, listen, I don't date men who aren't Christian. He's like, why do you assume I'm not a Christian? You never asked me. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know. I just assumed. And he's like, well, I am. Like, I think I was very career driven, I think at the time when I met uh, Jessica. And, um, and I think that naturally, I think drove us to really, okay, if this is gonna move forward, you know, what do we want in that? Kind of future relationship and for me too um, I really wanted again faith to be a huge part of that and seeing that like want and that need um, in her really inspired me I think to, to grow as well I feel like the moment that we entered Chapel Street we just felt like that community there um, just with a group of people that um, were gathering so that was something that really drew us and another thing that really draw drawed us in as well was the fact that uh, there's a food pantry connected to it and we are also focused on how can we feed our community and to me that's a very important issue because as a dietitian I've done a lot of work with like food pantries in the past and just that's something that I value. So from even when we had just gotten engaged we were very intent on like how can we invest in our marriage to come and then once we got married we're, we wanted to invest in it. Um, we, even, we did premarital counseling with our pastor. We wanted to make sure we had a strong foundation. And then even when we were married, anything that said marriage, we were going there. Like anything related to the church, like if it said marriage in it, like we were going to sign up, we were going to go. If it's a conference, a talk, whatever it is, we were like 100% down to go. So the marriage retreat that we went to, it was wonderful. The intent of that is really just establish a strong relationship, look out for signs that may not be good signs, and uh, how can you address that and how can you grow? And it, it challenges us to ask a lot of questions and talk about a lot of things that weren't necessarily being talked about or being asked. And I think uh, one thing with some of those classes as well, and you know, you can go through that entire course, um, but all of it's, it's what you put into use, what you put into play. So I think if you take the, the items from that course, take the items from that class, and again, are able to kind of plug into that, really uh, practice what um, is reviewed each week. Uh, you can really make an impact. I mean, we're such a young couple. You don't think of us as like, okay, let's pursue every marriage yeah, class we can. It's like, oh, is there something wrong? But no, it's just about investing in your marriage early on so that way you don't wait till it gets really wrong to do something about it too. Um, and I think we even told someone that we weren't that close to like, hey, like we're doing this thing in our church and they're like, I think they had asked me or him, like, are you guys okay? <laughs> like, you're doing a marriage thing. We're like, no, no, we just want to invest in our marriage now. When we're young, we're just starting out. I played sports in college, and like, if you want to be good at sports, you have to practice, right? You have to practice when you want to be good at something. So why is that any different in your relationship? Like, you have to invest in it. You have to put it in the practice so that way you can be a better player, a better spouse down the road.
people here at Chapel Street, we do, we do believe that marriages matter, and I love what Jessica said, that it's important to invest in marriages like we invest in anything that's important. And we have a marriage workshop coming up in January that's for all marriages, uh, young marriages and marriages that are more mature as well, for marriages that are doing well and want to learn something, uh, and those who are, might be struggling in an area. It's a marriage workshop with Dr. Lisa Natz, and it runs seven weeks beginning in January. Uh, if you or someone you know might be interested in just sharing in this kind of a workshop, then you can find out more about it on our website, and we hope that you can uh, get involved there. And again, it's for all marriages, no matter how long you've been married, there's something we can learn and ways we can grow as we invest into our relationships. Well, last weekend, uh, Lorraine and I had the chance to speak at a marriage uh, retreat for a small church up in Michigan. Uh, and as we were driving home, uh, I noticed a bumper sticker on the back of a large semi-tractor trailer. And it said, do you follow Jesus this close? Uh, the sticker wasn't very big, but I could read it. And when I, when I pulled out to pass the guy, I liked the bumper sticker. I pointed out to my wife, when I went to pass him, I wanted to honk and wave like, yeah, great bumper sticker. But then he would know that I was kind of tailgating him, so I didn't really know what to do. It was kind of awkward. But I do enjoy uh, noticing bumper stickers. It's common to see this one on the bumper of a proud parent. My child is an honor student. Maybe you had that back in the day. Or it's common to see this one on, uh, on the bumper of a proud dog owner. My dog is smarter than your honor student. Some bumper stickers have a more philosophical and positive message like practice random acts of kindness. I like that. Or maybe visualize world peace. Or some are more cynical like visualize using your turn signal. Some are rather disturbing. If you want to taste a religion, bite a minister. Now, who would think of a bumper sticker like that? Some are spiritually challenging. Eternity, smoking or non-smoking. Kind, of kind of have to think about that one a little bit. And some of them just express prevailing cultural values. I've been poor and I've been rich. Rich is better. Now, I would guess most of us, at some point, have had thoughts like this last bumper sticker. You receive a paycheck that's a little less than maybe you would like it to be, or you look at your savings account, there's not as much in there as you would like to have in there, and you wonder, like Tevya in Fiddler on the Roof, would it change some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? And as soon as that longing takes shape in our hearts, we have entered the interface between material wealth and our faith. And we've already seen in our study of the book of James that James is concerned about the relationship between faith and material wealth. We're in a series now, we've been in it for some time, called Faith Works from the New Testament book of James. Just a brief review. James, as you remember, is writing to first century Jewish background Christians uh, who are beginning to face persecution. And it seems that that persecution has taken the shape at this point in time, of economic trials, uh, that they are facing a growing situation of poverty uh, and injustice. And so James is concerned that this pressure that they are experiencing is beginning to drive a wedge between what they believe and how they are actually living or behaving. So he's challenging them, and I believe us today, to a faith that works. A faith that works during times of trial, 
difficulty, a faith that works in temptation, a faith that shapes how we speak, how we use our words, a, shape, a, a faith that helps us deal both with poverty and prosperity. And last week, James pointed to the futility of making our life plans without considering the sovereignty of God's will. And today's passage uh, is a continuation of some of those same thoughts. So I'm going to read today from James chapter 5, and we're going to look at the first 12 verses. Let me read through these and make a few comments, and then we'll dig in. So watch the screens or your own personal Bible, James chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. He writes, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Let me pause there. Uh, James is straightforward in this letter, but here he's as blunt as he is anywhere in the letter um, and as sharp, sharp as he is anywhere in the letter. But so who is he talking about here? Is he talking to people in the church? Probably not. Most scholars believe here James is taking a role kind of like an Old Testament prophet uh, where he, where, who would sometimes speak of God's coming judgment um, on the wicked as a way of encouraging God's people. And in fact, the language James uses here comes straight out of Isaiah chapter 13. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. So James is taking the role of a prophet. Verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. This may ring a bell in your minds. He is echoing Jesus, his older half-brothers, teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Picking up James again in verse 3. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. I told you James is being sharp here. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, and the word there means brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed and who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So this last verse, verse 12, uh, seems to be a kind of summary of one of James' main points throughout the letter, and that is, if your faith is genuine, it produces obedient action. So you don't need to swear oaths of any kind. You can simply be truthful and do what you say you're going to do. Now here, James, again, is echoing almost exactly Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Okay, so in this passage, I think James is offering two things. 
to that early church, the struggling believers, and to us today. First, he offers a prophetic warning, and second, a prophetic promise. So first, the prophetic warning. Uh, How many of you uh, remember the Beanie Baby craze of the late 1990s? Anybody remember Beanie Babies? Okay, good. At least a few of you do. That's great. Well, Beanie Babies were created by a man named Ty Warner, who launched a company called Ty Incorporated. And there were these small little cuddly animal figures stuffed with small pellets and given creative names. Like there was Legs the Frog. And there was Squealer the Pig. And there was Splash the Whale. And there was Pinchers the Lobster. And many others. And because the Ty company produced only a limited number of each figure, Beanie Babies became a kind of a collector's fad for a time. And they became very valuable, again, for a time. People began actually buying rare Beanie Babies as financial investments. At one point, several of these $5 toys, and you can look this up uh, on the Internet, several of these $5 toys sold for over $100,000. Well, at one point, our four sons had collected uh, about 30 of these Beanie Babies enough to fill a whole plastic bin. Now, we had no idea what they were worth, but they had accumulated, you know, a fair amount of Beanie Baby wealth for young boys. And at one point, one of our sons, who at the time was about seven years old, um, wanted to give a birthday gift to his young cousin. And I thought that was very nice of him. And then I saw him get out one of his Beanie Babies out of the bin. The one he picked out was Tabasco the Bull, one of my favorites. Um, Now, Tabasco was rumored to be worth some good money in those days on the Beanie Baby black market. Enough, by the way, to like pay for a semester of college education. So that's on my mind, and it was one of our favorites. So I asked him, uh, uh, hey, bud, what are you doing? And he said, I'm going to give my cousin a Beanie Baby for his birthday. I have a lot of them. He doesn't have any. I think he'll really like it. And I said, are you sure? If you give away Tabasco, you know, you, you won't be able to get him back. It'll be, you can't change your mind. And he said, yeah, Dad, I know, but I want to give it to him. I said, but it's Tabasco. <laughs> and then it hit me. Uh, Lorraine and I have been trying to teach our boys to value relationships over things, to cultivate generosity. But when it happened, I was doing my best to teach him to hoard his Beanie Baby Wells. Listen again to James' words. Again, these are hard to hear. Listen to them as a prophet speaking about uh, uh, wickedness in the world. He says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So again, who is James talking about here? As I mentioned, he's not describing, most likely not describing people in the church. Rather, he's speaking prophetically about the unjust and the unbelieving rich, who have gained and maintained their wealth through injustice and oppression. This is an example of what scholars call prophetic lament. It's intended to bring comfort and hope to those who are being abused and oppressed. In other words, the the poor working class believers 
who have lost their livelihoods are being persecuted. So he wants them to see that God sees injustice and that one day will bring judgment on the sins of the unrighteous rich. But along the way, uh, if there were those in the church who were coming to faith out of situations of prosperity, they needed to be paying attention. And I would say for us here today, we happen to live in one of the most comfortable and affluent cultures that's ever existed. We need to be paying attention as well, if any of these words apply to us. Now, historians tell us in the culture and time in which James was writing, there were three main indicators of wealth. And they're slightly different than ours today. In that day and time, the indicators of wealth were food, clothing, and then gold or silver. And James points to God's judgment coming in all three areas. He said, your riches have rotted, food rots, your garments are moth-eaten, that's what happens to clothing over time, your gold and silver have corroded. Now, I want you to see what James is not saying here. He's not saying that it's sinful to earn money or to possess wealth. He's not. The Bible is full of examples of godly people who possess great wealth. He's not saying that all rich people are doomed to judgment. Not saying that. What he is saying is that it's sinful to gain or use wealth in unjust ways. And he gives three warnings to the rich. First, he warns that wealth is deceptive. Provides false security. Wealth promises what it cannot deliver. It tells you that you do not need God. Last week, Pastor Jeff preached from James chapter 4. We read this verse. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. I was thinking another way to say this is you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. That would be a good bumper sticker too, by the way. Second, he warns that wealth is seductive. In 2022, Americans spent $108 billion on lottery tickets. That's more money than was spent on sporting events, movie tickets, books, video games, recorded music combined. The odds of winning a large jackpot in a lottery are 292 million to one. You are 400 times more likely to be struck by lightning than to win a lottery. And yet millions of people line up every month to buy lottery tickets. Why? Because wealth is seductive. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Thirdly, the warning is that wealth can become an idol. It can take the place of God as the central affection of our hearts, and when that happens, it's corrosive to our very souls. And then James also points to three sins of the rich. <coughs> Excuse me. First, the sin of hoarding wealth. He says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Reminds me of the book of Wisdom, Ecclesiastes, that says, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. Now that word hoarding 
You know, we tend to think of today in our culture of people who, you know, save up 25 years of old newspapers or magazines and have junk stored up. Uh, but that's not what James is talking about here. I saw this week that the most recent Forbes list of the 400 richest Americans came out. So I was curious. Did you know there are now 72 people in the U.S. who are worth more than $10 billion? There are actually nine people in our nation worth more than $100 billion. And as I look through that list, they also give, grade, give uh, grades for uh, charitable giving. And two-thirds of the 400 richest Americans have donated less than 5% of their wealth to charity. Two-thirds of the 400 richest, less than 5% to charity. In other words, they'd rather, they, they've hoarded most of their wealth for themselves. But it's not just the super wealthy who have an issue with material possessions. Did you know there are now 50,000 self-storage units in the United States? 50,000. And 2,000 new ones are being built every year. Why? We have collectively as a culture too much stuff to fit it in our homes. I think if James walked around in our culture and he saw 50,000 storage units, I think he might think we have a hoarding problem in our culture. Secondly, the sin of injustice, verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. A couple of years ago, uh, we had our house painted, and we'd gotten a reference from our next-door neighbors about who they hired. They recommended two brothers named Javier and Leo. Uh, they were immigrants from Mexico and ran their own painting business. They, so we hired them, and they did a fantastic job, went above and beyond what we expected, uh, and we got to go know a little bit of their story. But let's say that when they were all done, we decided to pay them half of what we had verbally agreed on. And let's say we did that because we knew they really couldn't do anything about it. I mean, they weren't going to sue us. There was no contract. It was just a verbal agreement and a handshake. I think you would probably agree if we did that, that'd be a pretty lousy thing to do. Even beyond that, it would be a sinful thing to do. Well, that's what was happening in this culture. That's what James is talking about, the sin of economic injustice. And thirdly, he talks about the sin of murder. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now here, James is probably talking about two different things. One is the rich who had abused their workers, sort of working them to death. Or he's talking about the growing persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire, which was starting to happen at that level. So James is encouraging and comforting the struggling believers he's writing to by reminding them that God sees all injustice, that God is paying attention, and that all sin will one day be dealt with. He hears their cries, and his judgment is coming. That's the prophetic warning. And then, secondly, James offers a prophetic promise. A prophetic promise. <clears throat> In my travels... Um, Throughout the developing world, I've had many chances to travel, uh, most recently to the country of Togo in West Africa. Uh, and by the way, in Togo, the average income is $46 a month. And when I've traveled in parts of the world like this and visited with believers and church leaders and pastors, uh, I have noticed that in places like this around the world, uh, the believers talk about heaven 
a lot more than we do. They talk about the coming of the Lord a lot more than we do. In fact, when I'm in these places around the world, almost every sermon I've heard, almost every prayer I've been a part of mentions either the hope of heaven or come Lord Jesus, come quickly. And I think I understand why it is. I think it's because our brothers and sisters around the world who suffer who suffer either poverty or outright persecution, are deeply aware of something that we are only vaguely aware of as a people. And that's that the whole point of life is not living your best life now. And there's another bumper sticker for you. Living my best life. They know that's not the point. They know the point is not living your best life now. The point is living our lives in light of what will be our best life then. That this world is not our home. And they know that in a far deeper way than we know it. Listen to what James says beginning in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, this establish your hearts is a beautiful phrase. We're going to come back to it in just a minute. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I want to focus on two key words and one phrase here. The first key word is patient. He says, be patient. It's the great Greek word makrothumeo. He uses it four times in this paragraph. It's a compound word, macro meaning long, and thumos meaning passion or wrath. So it means literally to be long-tempered rather than short-tempered. It's actually a word used to describe the very nature of God himself. In Psalm 103, we read, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. That's long-tempered and abounding in love. Uh, not long ago, and maybe you've had an experience like this, I ran, just ran into our local grocery store to pick up a couple of items. Just, I, I think I just needed two things, you know, chips and salsa. <laughs> well, two of the main food groups, right? Um, so I, when I went to check out, I went to the express lane. You know, the little sign that says 15 items or less. So I got behind a lady, uh, and, you know, I, I just did a quick check of her cart, you know. Be honest. How many of you ever count? Have you ever counted the person's? So I looked. She only had five items. Oh, great. It's going to be quick, you know. Now I was in a hurry, even though I didn't need to be, but, you know, you want to be quick. But she went to pay, and she <laughs> opened up her, she said to the cashier, I have coupons. And she opened up her purse and started fishing in her purse for coupons. And she had like a dozen coupons. You know, three cents here, five cents there. Oh, 20 cents here. And she was, it took her like, you know, three minutes or five minutes to dig out all the coupons. The whole time I'm going, express lane, you know, coupons. And then after she gave all the coupons, she, she, I, I'm, not, I'm not making this up, she took out a checkbook. You know, I'm like, you know, we have cards for that now. <laughs> so my macrothumia went out the window. I was frustrated because I was in the express lane. 
James is saying the key for patience, the key to patience is knowing what we are waiting for. Right? The second word is found in the phrase, the coming of the Lord. The Greek word is parousia, translated simply as coming, but it's a really rich word. He uses it twice here. Parousia is a word that was used in that culture to point to the eminent appearance of the emperor. And in the New Testament, this word is used only and exclusively for the coming of Christ, the second coming of Jesus. Jesus, the true emperor, the king of all things, will soon appear. The New Testament tells us he will come in great power and great glory to establish the new heaven and new earth, to redeem all things, and to reign with perfect justice, and to execute judgment. That's what Paul talks about in Titus chapter 2 when he writes, For the grace of God has appeared, that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing, the parousia of the Lord, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. James is reminding these early believers that the promised return of Jesus is so certain and so near that it produces patience and endurance. And then he gives several examples of, uh, as illustrations. A farmer who waits patiently for his crops to grow. The prophets who waited for the promised Messiah to arrive, and then Job, who endured undeserved suffering. And here's the point. We most often, I think, assume that our present, like what's happening to us to in the present, determines our future. Like what's happening to me now, today, determines what's going to happen tomorrow or next month or next year. But James is saying, no, it's what we believe about the future. It's what we know that is certain about the future that rushes back into our present and shapes how we live now. And so, when we believe that Jesus, the King, is coming to bring perfect justice and perfect judgment, to bring His mercy and compassion to those who have trusted Him, we can wait with both perseverance and obedience. And now I want to turn to the key phrase. He says, establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. Now the word heart in that uh, language didn't mean just our emotions. Like we use heart to refer to emotions. But then it meant the center of your whole life. Establish your whole life. Everything that you are. And establish means to fix firmly, to solidly plant, to anchor. So James is asking a question in a way. He's asking, where does your heart stand? In what or in who does your heart rest? In what or in who does your heart hope? The unjust rich, he says, have established their hearts on material wealth. And for them, judgment is coming. But for you, he says, those of you who call Jesus Lord, establish your hearts in his promise, in the promise of his coming. This is why I believe our brothers and sisters around the world talk about heaven so much. It's why they look forward to the coming of the Lord, because they have established their hearts where their hearts belong. And this is what allows us to persevere through trials, through suffering, without grumbling, and without losing hope. Because we can trust that Jesus will keep his promise. 
that Jesus is coming and in the compassion and mercy he promises to bring to us in that day. I'm going to close with a little story, and you may remember this. I've used it before, but years ago, when our boys were young, Lorraine and I would share um, bedtime duty. That is, uh, one of us would handle bath time, which was itself an adventure, getting pajamas on, brushing teeth, and so forth, while the other would then take over and take care of uh, reading the books and telling the stories and praying with them and tucking them into bed for the night. Well, one particular night, uh, Lorene took the preliminaries, bath time and pajamas and all that, and she was up taking care of all that while I was down in the family room doing something, you know, important, like watching a playoff game. And she finished all that, got them in their rooms, and she leaned out over our little loft area. She said, hey, boys are ready for you. I said, okay, tell them I'll be right up. And I, I didn't move off the couch at that moment because it was like, toward the end of a quarter, and then uh, 40 minutes later, she poked her head out again and said, hey, did you say goodnight to the boys? Oh, I, I forgot to say goodnight to my own children because I was watching the basketball game. So I ran upstairs. I figured I'll go in to each room, and I'll say goodnight to each one of them. No one, they'll be, told, they'll be dead asleep because I know in the morning they'll ask me, Daddy, did you come up? And I can say, yeah, I did, but you were asleep. So I will go in the first room where our older boys were, sure enough, both dead asleep. So I said goodnight to them quietly. We went to the next room where there was bunk beds. Checked in my youngest, who was on the bottom, dead asleep, said goodnight to him. And I picked my head up. I looked up over the railing to the top bunk where my third son was. He was laying there wide awake, eyes open. And I looked at him, and he said, I knew you'd come, Daddy. I knew you'd come. Something dawned on me in that moment. My five-year-old had waited 40 minutes for me to say goodnight because to him, my promise was good. And he believed me. And a couple of things dawned on me. The first was that the, the promises have a power. My son took my nonchalant words, I'll be up in a minute, as an ironclad promise. And he believed I was trustworthy and that my promise was true. And the privilege of that the privilege of, and the weight of his faith in me was both heavy and deeply rewarding at the same time. But the second thing I noticed and thought about a lot was the power of hope. My five-year-old, in a way, had established his heart on what he regarded as my promise to him. And his hope is what kept him awake and sustained his waiting until I came. James is encouraging these struggling believers, and I believe us today, with whatever we are dealing with, <coughs> by reminding them that Jesus promised. He promised. He promised to be with us. He promised to come to us and to take us to be with him where he is. And this certain promise of the future, James believed, rushes back into our present and produces patience, obedience, and hope. So James says, today, to us. Establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. Will you bow with me as I close? Lord Jesus, today we thank you for your word. And we've been studying this letter for weeks now, but we thank you for these words from James. Words that sometimes cut like a knife. Words that also encourage and strengthen. So we thank you for the warning that we listen to today, to guard our hearts from the seductive allure of material wealth. We thank you for the encouragement of your promise 
that we can establish our hearts in your mercy, in compassion, in your promise, and the great hope of your eternal kingdom. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Just before the benediction, I want to thank Genuine Brass for being with us today, and Robert as well for playing on the piano. And I want to let you know that following the benediction, if you want to express personally your thanks to Kenton, I want you to just rush up to him and give him a giant hug. <laughs> Actually, he will go running screaming out of the room if you do that. So maybe from a distance, just a nice thumbs up from a distance. Would be great. So thank you, Kenton, so much for your service. Receive now the benediction. It comes from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Have a great day.